With your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 13. Our reading will begin in verse 26. Let us pray. Gracious God, we pray upon the reading of your word and its preaching that you would bless our hearing. Father, it is you who taught us that not all who listen hear. We pray that you would give us ears to hear. We confess, O Lord, that as necessary as preaching and reading is, your spirit must open the ear and your word must be received by faith. Grant such a wonder to us today that those who have long been dead, those who have long not heard a thing from your son's mouth would today hear, and those who are familiar with his voice would have every grace to tune in and fix upon it and take every responsibility for what they hear today. Oh, Lord, help us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 13, verse 26. Beloved, this is the word of God. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, Be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. This is God's word. 
Beloved, what men and women desperately want in this life is an upwardly mobile Savior. A Savior who will improve their earthly life, who will fix their economic problems, their political problems, their relationship problems, their social problems. The craving for earthly well-being was so strong in the rulers of Jerusalem, the ancient church, they made this this declaration about Jesus Christ at a formal council meeting. They said, and I quote, If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. John eleven forty eight. So at that meeting, the Jewish council, the top men of the church, at that very meeting, they determined they would put Jesus to death, whatever it took. Jesus did not satisfy their cravings for earthly well-being. Both ancient people and modern people are always looking for an upwardly mobile savior. They look for the savior in the power of the state, in the field of technology, in the promises of the pharmacy, in the sedation of entertainment, in the glory of sports, in the success of business. They even look for this savior this upwardly mobile earthly savior in twisted versions of Christianity that promise religious techniques for gaining a place or a nation in this present evil age. We must listen better to the word of God. If the Apostle Paul tells the Galatians that the age we are living in is the present evil age, do we think that the kingdom of Jesus Christ would take up a city in this age? His city is of the age to come, and we are already citizens of it. People are so committed to finding this upwardly mobile Savior, they reject again and again the one Savior God himself provides, his beloved Son. They tell themselves, he cannot possibly be the one Why do they reject him? Because he does not fit their cravings. He does not fit their expectations. If Jesus is the real Savior, they tell themselves, he would deliver me into a better earthly life. He would let me live my best life now. But when they start to realize Jesus will not make earthly life better, they begin to distance themselves from him and eventually they reject him, and eventually, as Hebrews 6, 6 says, they crucify him all over again in their contempt of him. He's not the Savior they're looking for because the salvation they're looking for is earthly. Well, in our passage today, Paul is preaching to this condition. He is preaching to the Jews of Antioch, Pisidia, And he declares to them a message, this message of salvation, verse 26. The salvation which comes from God. And it is not a salvation from their earthly troubles or from their earthly oppressors. Paul never announces that their earthly circumstances are about to change. 
He announces God's salvation from God's own wrath and God's own curse on sin. He announces that salvation. And the only place they can see this salvation, says Paul, is in the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. In verse 27 through 29, Paul declares the humiliation. In verse 30 through 37, he declares the exaltation. Paul means to show us that the entirety of the salvation which God has accomplished for sinners is contained in these two major movements of the life of Jesus. Christ's lowliness unto death, humiliation. Christ vanquishing the power of death, exaltation. We're going to look at those closer, but for now, let us understand. Paul is laying down a very narrow road here. The salvation of God is contained in these two movements. Not in Christ's miracles. Not in Christ's teaching. Not in Christ's example. Salvation is in Christ's descent into death and his ascent out of death. Which means you cannot see the salvation from God in someone's bank account. You cannot see the salvation of God in the many friends someone has. You cannot see the salvation of God in the quality of someone's marriage. You cannot see the salvation of God in the greatness of someone's country or their city. God's salvation cannot be recognized by the natural man, even though it took place in the history of man. Verse 27 of our text says the Jewish leaders... Not the Jewish peasants, not the half-Jewish Samaritans, the top men of the church, those men. The Jewish leaders did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They saw the miracles he did, but they did not recognize him as the Christ. Why not? Because Jesus did not come in the image of of their own desires. That's why many people cannot follow Jesus with heart and love, because he does not come to them in the image of their own desires. Not because there's a fault in him, but because there's such a strength in their desires. They wanted earthly power, these top men of Jerusalem. They wanted earthly prosperity. They wanted their place. But Jesus did not come to accomplish some teeny-weeny earthly temporary salvation. He came to open the kingdom of heaven, offering himself to God a sacrifice for their sins. Well, I don't want to go to heaven. I want, I want to have more money. Satan is your father. We must remember a craving for earthly glory is the number one scam of the devil. And it will keep you from recognizing Jesus as the Son of God. 
when Satan brought three temptations against Jesus in the wilderness, after 40 days of his fasting, each temptation was designed to lure Jesus into craving the things of earth. Number one, command this stone to become bread. Number two, I will give you the kingdoms of the world if you worship me. Number three, preserve your earthly life with the help of God's angels. Satan uses the same scam on unbelievers and believers alike. The success rate among unbelievers is fatal. Paul says in another place, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4. The God of this world is Satan, and he uses the cravings of the world which he is God of to blind men to the glory of Jesus Christ. Now look again at verse 27. Paul says, The rulers in Jerusalem did not understand the utterances of the prophets, which were read to them every Sabbath day. Now it is quite shrewd for Paul to say this to the Jews in Antioch, Pisidia, at a synagogue. Shrewd because at that time that he speaks those words, they had just heard the prophets being read in their own synagogue service. You can see it in verse 15 of the same chapter. And Paul does not want them to make the same fatal error the rulers of Jerusalem made. The rulers in Jerusalem heard prophecies concerning Christ frequently, not infrequently. They heard these prophecies weekly in their own synagogues, not whispered out in the woods. They heard these prophecies from the very scriptures they highly honored. But they did not understand what they were hearing. And they did not know they did not understand. Their cravings for an earthly salvation kept them from understanding the prophecies of a suffering Savior. In Genesis 3.15, they would have heard about the seed of the woman who would be bruised as he crushed the head of the serpent. In Genesis 22.8, they would have heard Abraham say to Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb for burnt offering. In Psalm 22, which we just sang, they would have heard about God withdrawing from his own servant, leaving the servant's son to suffer. From Isaiah 53, 3, they would have heard that the Lord's servant would come only to be despised and rejected by men while bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows. And in Daniel 9.26, they would have heard about the 62 weeks where Messiah would then be cut off. All about the death of Christ. They heard all of these prophecies and many more, but couldn't understand them. A suffering Messiah was beyond their comprehension. Though they heard about him every Sabbath, Their minds were hardened. That's Paul's expression as he explains this very event in another letter, 2 Corinthians 3.14. The minds of these rulers of Jerusalem, their minds were hardened, and he says, a veil darkened their heart because they did not think, they did not think sin was their greatest crisis. 
They did not think death was their greatest enemy. They did not think God's wrath was their greatest danger. They could not understand a need for a suffering Savior. They thought all their troubles were with men on the earth, not with God in heaven. Satan had them, and they had themselves by sin. The Apostle John says, Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. John 1.11. Did the unbelief of the Jews defeat God's plan? Did God throw up his hands and walk off the scene like some fancy actor, overpaid, overpampered? Their unbelief did not defeat God's plan. Our text, Paul says, they fulfilled the prophets by condemning him. Verse 27. And quote, they carried out all that was written of him. Verse 29. In their effort to keep him out of their hearts, they enthroned him over all the world. What a mighty, wise God. Never be discouraged by the unbelief of men. God's plan marches on, and the unbelief of men is part of the plan. If it weren't, how could I be a pastor? How could anybody be an evangelist? How could anybody pray? Paul is saying it was the very plan of God that Christ be humiliated unto death by the rejection of his own people. Rejection did not defeat, but fulfilled God's purpose. This is how we are to look as Christians indeed on all of our sufferings in Christ, is it not? My life is so miserable. How can I be a believer in Jesus and have such a miserable life? God's plan is marching forward. You will see it in full daylight on the other side of glory. But now you hold it by faith, and scriptures like this give you the strength to tighten the grip and keep moving. So do you see what all of this means? It means it was always God's plan to save his church when she was at her worst, not at her best. This is why pastors can go to new churches that are full of fights and pride and division, a wasteland, and they show up. Because they know that at the very bedrock of gospel mission, God comes and he saves his church, not when she is at her best, but when she is at her worst. And this removes all grounds for boasting. It leaves all glory to God in the salvation of men. He brought about man's salvation not with his church's good help, He brought it about through his church's evil scheming. At the very hour his church had blackened the sea, 
with their evil scheme to crucify him. At that hour, Christ dives in. He waits and says, it's not dark enough yet. He waits, it's not dark enough yet. And then when it's as black as black, and the offspring of Satan are in the top positions in the church, off he goes from the high cliff of heaven and dives into the blackened sea. He plunges into the very sinfulness of sin to offer himself to God in death. This is his humiliation. To bear the condemnation we deserved, to drink the cup of God's wrath in our place on the cross, this is his great humiliation, and only by it can a man be saved. The salvation of God has accomplished in giving his son over to death, the answer to sin, death, and wrath. It is the only salvation that opens heaven to you and gives God to you as your eternal father. Do not crave earthly salvation because it will blind you to this salvation. Beloved, let me get a little closer to you. How many scriptures did these rulers of Jerusalem hear and still not recognize a humiliated Messiah? How many scriptures have you listened to? Is your ardor, which means red-hot love, is your ardor for Christ in proportion to your sermon listening and your Bible reading? Or are you disappointed with a salvation that is not of this world? Does Jesus kind of, is he kind of an, a downer for you, an embarrassment to you? Because he doesn't rule in Washington, D.C. or, well, what's that other big city out there in West? Colorado Springs. Remember, if your Savior's humiliation is necessary for your salvation, your humiliation is necessary for your sanctification. You do not get to go to glory and skip humiliation. There is no Christian pilgrim without a cross on his back. There is no glory in the present evil age for the sons of God. It is in the age to come through resurrection. Well, what about the exaltation? What about his ascent out of death? Well, this is what Paul proclaims beginning at verse 30. As John Calvin said, quote, Paul would never persuade people to seek salvation in Christ's death unless the power of the Almighty God had appeared in raising Christ from death. So beginning in verse 30, Paul proclaims the resurrection of Christ. And what he says here, from 30 down through 37, follows a very simple three-stage proclamation. First, he declares the truth of the resurrection. Second, he declares the evidence of the resurrection. And then third, he declares the necessity of the resurrection. So to to declare the truth of Christ's resurrection, Paul simply 
says one sentence in verse 30. God raised him from the dead. Now, we're supposed to hear verse 30 in contrast to what man did with Christ, what the rulers of Jerusalem did with Christ. It was the judgment of sinful man that Jesus should die. It is the judgment of God that he be raised. Now, of course, it was the will of God, too, that Christ die. We just labored that point. But God's will for Christ to die was not for the same reasons evil men wanted him dead. And because God's reasons for Christ's death were salvific, it is God's judgment that Christ be raised from the dead. So that's the statement of the truth of it. In verse 31, we hear the evidence of it. Paul says, For many days after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee. They are now the witnesses to his resurrection. That's the evidence that there is a small college of witnesses on the earth to the resurrection. Now, we might wish that wasn't the evidence. We might wish that Jesus was sitting, holding session in the White House or in some giant mansion near Mountain, Wisconsin, right by my grandfather's cottage that he built. But Jesus is not on the earth after his resurrection. His witnesses are, and their writings are, their scriptures. This is the wisdom of God to keep you and I from craving an earthly salvation, to keep you and I constrained to needing the Holy Spirit to open our ears. Because no matter how wide our eyes were open, even if a man comes back from the dead, Jesus himself said, men won't believe unless the Spirit of God grants them to hear and believe the word. Paul put the same verse 31 in another expression in his letter to the Corinthians. Quote, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Paul's basic point here in verse 31 is that anyone, any one of you who wants to can go speak or sit at the feet of these witnesses. And they will tell you what they heard. They will tell you what they saw. They will tell you what they touched with their own hands concerning the word of life, Jesus Christ. Lastly, Paul goes on and declares the necessity of the resurrection. And this he gives a little more, work, a little more ink to, as you can tell. He declares the necessity of the, rex- of the resurrection by showing that not only was the humiliation of Christ foretold by prophets, but so was the exaltation of Christ foretold by prophets. The prophets, ever since there were prophets raised up by God, have been telling about the salvation that would come to sinful man only through the humiliation of God's Son only through the humiliation of the Redeemer, only through the exaltation of God's Son and the exaltation of the Redeemer. All the prophets have been talking about this 
since the beginning. This is the key of history. This is the secret of humanity. This humiliated Savior, exalted Savior. So Paul quotes to declare the necessity of his resurrection three Old Testament scriptures. And the purpose of each of these quotations is to confirm the identity of the one whom God has raised. In other words, these Old Testament verses are Paul's way of saying God had to raise this man from the dead because this man is not just a man. He is the divine son in human flesh. That's what these Old Testament quotes are for. So in verse 33, Paul quotes Psalm 2-7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, in Psalm 2-7, where that comes from, God declares that the Messiah is God's own natural son. Now, if God has a natural son, that son has been God as long as God has been God. That son is God. A begotten son is not a son who is created, not a creature, but a son who is begotten. We just used this word this morning in our Nicene Creed. The natural sonship of Christ comes from eternal generation. So by quoting Psalm 2-7, Paul is not saying that upon his resurrection, Christ became God's son. No, Paul is saying Christ had to be raised up by God because he had always been God's only begotten son. Here's how the late and quite excellent John Gill said, said it. Quote, the resurrection of Christ is not the cause of his sonship or the reason why he is called the Son of God, but it is a manifestation of it, a necessary one. In verse 34, Paul quotes Isaiah 55, 3, and he reckons this verse fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David, words that God has spoken to the messianic son. 700 years before Christ was born, Isaiah penned those words. And Paul says, mine eyes have seen their fulfillment. Why? Because God bestowed on David's offspring an irrevocable blessing. And to have an irrevocable blessing bestowed upon you and your offspring requires a kind of permanence that is not familiar among mortals. It's the permanence of resurrection life. That's Paul's point, a sure blessing, a blessing that could not fail nor change nor suffer fault through corruption. And Jesus is David's greater son, not only from his lineage by birth, but also before David by rank and office. Jesus had to be raised. He had to be the one who was awarded the blessings of a forever kingdom and the blessings of a forever throne. Paul is declaring the divinity of Christ as the necessity of the resurrection. 
And then lastly, verse 35, he quotes Psalm 1610, which is one of my favorite psalms to sing in this congregation. So beautiful. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. Paul goes on to labor immediately that this cannot be a reference to David because David has died and he has seen corruption. This can only be fulfilled in the Holy One who is the divine Son. The Father will not let a divine Son see corruption. He will not let his body decay under the rot of death. Christ died, but he did not see corruption. So he had to be raised in three short days. And so he was. But notice something that's here in all of Paul's statements, because he has already mentioned the witnesses. Christ has not been raised to an earthly throne. This is very dissatisfying to a people who are seeking a salvation of earthly bounty. People who are driven by cravings for earthly salvation. This is not satisfying. Christ has not been raised to an earthly throne. We cannot see our salvation by natural eyes, even though it took place in human history before the eyes of men. How well did that work for them as they saw Christ humiliated on the cross? They mocked him. That's how well their eyes worked for them. They saw his miracles. They mocked him. That's how well it worked for him. They heard his teaching. They mocked him. That's how well it worked for them. Christ is not raised to an earthly throne, but to a heavenly throne. And he sends us earthly witnesses to set the word of his triumph on our ear. For a word is enough for the spirit of the risen Christ to conquer worlds. So we must come to see this salvation, that Christ has died for our sins and he has been raised up and enthroned for our justification and eternal life. We must see this with spiritual eyes. You cannot go see it anywhere in the world. There are people in communities who are fitter than our community, who are wealthier than our community, who live longer than our community. There's a community in a little village in, I think it's on the coast of France or Italy, and they drink this remarkable wine, and their average lifespan, even right now, is pushing around 107. And it's in the grape. But that is not the salvation of God. You cannot go find a government that is so tightly run and organized and so prosperous for its people that that is the salvation of God. All the works of men, our arts, our government, our health care, our education, all the works of men are under the judgment of God. None of them will release us from condemnation. This condemned man does. Paul says to all those who are eager to follow him, 
continue in the grace of God. Look what he says there in verse 43. After the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. It is the grace of God which gives us eyes to see the salvation of God in a naked, humiliated divine son on a cross, bleeding to death. It is the grace of God which gives us spiritual eyes to see that what the witnesses have said, what they have touched, is the ascent of Jesus who died out of death, a true physical resurrection, seated now at the right hand of God on a heavenly throne. Beloved, let me press this point to you now before we close. Our salvation is constrained to the humiliation of God's divine Son in his death on the cross and the resurrection of the divine Son, not to an earthly throne, but to a heavenly. That means that to experience this salvation, to enjoy it, to live in it, we will match the pattern by which it came to us. Humiliation in this world, glory in the world to come. Not glory in this present evil age and humiliation for eternity. No, humiliation in this world, glory in the world to come. Paul, writing to the Corinthians in in his second letter, says in chapter 13, 4, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we live with him by the power of God. Meaning in this world, among among men, we will suffer humiliation, hatred, falling behind, losing. I'm no post-millennialist. We are suffering people, pilgrim people, We are weak in him. Where? In heaven? No, in this world. But in him, we live by the power of God. What does Paul mean by that? Every declaration of God's truth tears down the strongholds of the devil. The truth of this salvation is the power of God. Romans 1, 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Though people who crave for an earthly salvation want to make me ashamed of it. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. So set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, great need of the hours for us to be persuaded that the same 
tender love in the heart of the divine son that gladly descended into humiliation unto death is the same tender love that he has now ascended with out of death at the th- to the throne in heaven to rule the world for us. He has not changed. Oh Lord, we pray that we'd be persuaded that you save your church when she is at her worst, not her best, and that you have removed all grounds for boasting. We have not contributed a thing to this great salvation, but we have more. We have more of it than a million lifetimes could enjoy. Father, we do pray that you would defeat any remaining cravings in us for an earthly salvation. It keeps us. It keeps us from thriving in the weakness of Christ. We are not just weak, Paul says. We are weak in him. Let us not be ashamed to be weak in him. Let us learn what it means to be weak in him. Some of us, oh Lord, you know, we need to be willing to become weaker. And that we are in his power when we speak the truth of his gospel, when we live it. Oh, gracious Lord, we thank you for this declaration of our our apostle before the synagogue, the people of Antioch, Pisidia. We thank you for how it holds us fast to the salvation that is from God in Jesus Christ. Amen.